We praise you and we, we thank you for this day in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. And as you take a seat, go ahead and open up a Bible with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes 2. I want to start today by giving you a quote, and I won't tell you who it's from yet. Okay, it goes like this. I maintain that the delights of work and leisure, of friendship and family, of eating and mating, of arts and crafts, of playing and watching games, of finding out and making things of helping other people, and all the other noble pleasures that life affords are doubled for the Christian. What, you thought I was going to say they're all vanity? Well, they are. But look at that quote again. We'll put it on the screen. And look at it, and do you agree with it? Do you believe it's true? Or does it sound something you might more hear a health and wealth false teacher say? I maintain that the delights of work and leisure, of friendship and family, of eating, all the other noble pleasures that life affords are doubled for the Christian. Believe it or not, I believe that this is in fact true. Or at least it should be. By the way, this quote is from the renowned, trustworthy theologian J.I. Packer. And the fuller quote includes him claiming that pleasure, unalloyed and unending, is God's purpose for his people in every aspect and activity of their fellowship with him. That pleasure is God's purpose for us. No pleasures are so frequent or intense as those of the grateful, devoted, single-minded, wholehearted, self-denying Christian. The Christian tastes God in all his pleasures, And this increases them, whereas for other men, pleasure brings with it a sense of hollowness, which reduces it. So pleasure brings with it a sense of hollowness, which reduces the delight that we humans feel in it. Now that sounds more like we've heard what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes so far, right? Ecclesiastes has systematically destroyed the hopes and value we place in things of this world. And as we've seen, Solomon's search for something, his extensive search for happiness or usefulness or goodness or a lasting legacy or lasting gain only left him disappointed, dissatisfied, even outright depressed. Like we heard him say, I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Knowing wisdom made him unhappier, pleasure made him insatiably frustrated, living wisely made him fatalistic, and working hard made him despair. And overshadowing all of this for Solomon was our biggest problem of death. Death was unavoidable. And death would empty all of our gain of any lasting value. 
Author Matthew McCullough, not our missionary of the same name, but he, Matthew McCullough describes his habit of visiting estate sales. You know, like big in-house garage sales that happen after someone dies. And he says it's a bizarrely intimate experience. Rifling through things that, that must have once had meaningful backstories to their owner. Like you're browsing through someone else's life after they've died. And he says that, that Solomon is telling us to think of all of our wealth and all it's bought for us, not from the perspective of the immediate thrill, but from the perspective of our estate sales. For all our time and attention, no matter how carefully we curate our stuff or how much we might enjoy ourselves along the way, we're all merely stalking and staging someone else's opportunity for bargain prices. And that's not even getting into the unfairness or the injustice of it all. What we earn in life should belong to us, but it won't forever. One person works, another person gets the wealth. And that's so unfair. Death makes it all vanity, unjust, hollow, fleeting, and thus very frustrating. And as we've listened to Solomon go over all this and his angst recently, it might be rubbing off on you. Maybe you're more easily sensing the, the vanity of life, the inherent vanity of life in a fallen world. And you wonder if, if wisdom, pleasure, and work are all not enough. What is? And these feelings of frustration may be extra strong right now as, as we wrestle with gut-wrenching images of death racing across our screens. So we cry out with Solomon. Say, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. If I were to, to sum up the main points of the previous few passages for us, I'd say this, that pleasure before death doesn't secure lasting happiness, wisdom before death doesn't secure lasting legacies, and work before death doesn't secure lasting gains. And yet, and yet, today's sermon is basically all, and yet. Solomon has our attention now. He's, he's stripped away all of our distractions from us. So we're now ready to hear his conclusion. The findings of his research project, if you will. And in them, he suddenly takes us somewhere surprising. He tells us to enjoy life. Enjoy life. And as we'll see, it is a, it's a refreshing ray of light. It's an oasis in the middle of a dry wilderness. Enjoy life. But how could that be? Does death just burst all of our bubbles of study and work and play? Well, now Solomon surprisingly bursts death's bubble. 
claiming that death cannot take true enjoyment away from us. And sometimes it can be challenging to figure out how to balance what he says here, as it may seem to contradict what he's just said before. We might think, like, who are you, and what have you done with sad Solomon? So how do we harmonize Solomon's despair over life and his enjoyment of life? And he insists both are true. Life is vanity, and yet we should enjoy it. Super smart people call this a deliberate, contradictory juxtaposition between these things. Because we live within the tension of a world that is both created very good and yet very fallen. It's a tension between life as God intends it to be and life as we often painfully experience it. So how do we live within the tension of a world like this? How do we live in the tension between happiness and disappointment, between influence and insignificance, between profit and loss, between joy and sorrow, and most pointedly, between life and death? Well, look with me. We're going to start in verse 24 today. It says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? We can't miss Solomon's flow of thought here. How this leads from what we've already seen. Martin Luther said that this is a remarkable passage that explains everything preceding and following it. And it's that it's the principal conclusion of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. So, wisdom, pleasure, and work before death can't secure lasting gains of any kind, yet God gives to us. That's the big point. God Yet, even with all of this in the background, yet God gives to us. I don't know if you noticed, but God has barely been mentioned at all in Ecclesiastes so far. Just skim your eyes back over the last couple pages. There's a lot of Solomon talking about himself, right? I did this, I did that, I tried this, I acquired this, I, I applied myself here, I, I perceived this, I searched, made, bought, built, gathered, I became great. The one and only time God was mentioned was in a complaint. Back in verse 13 in chapter 1, he said, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So there too, the, the focus was on God giving, but giving something unhappy. Now, we get a sudden shift in tone and Solomon mentions God five times in three verses. And this time, he focuses on God giving good things for us to enjoy. 
There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. So what does God give to us even in the midst of this fallen world? Well, ultimately, anything and everything good we ever experience comes from God. But I think Solomon has three things in particular in mind as he wrote these words, which I'll point out as we go along today. The first one's very easy to see here, that he gives joy. God gives joy. God gives joy, it says, in in eating and drinking. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and and find enjoyment in his toil, so joy in working. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment, enjoy in, in general? And he goes on, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and and joy. So God gives all this. And Solomon says there's nothing better than eating, drinking, enjoying our toil. By this, he's not saying that there is literally nothing else better than these things. He's more just saying the best way to make the most out of life is to enjoy it. Besides, if you think about it, Enjoying the gifts of God is one of the main reasons we exist. There is a good and a bad kind of hedonism, a pursuit of of pleasure or comfort. One will destroy you, and the other one drives you to God, who happens to be the source, the creator of good food and good drink and good work. So, if you thought Solomon's point in telling us that that pleasure and work were vanity was to tell us to shun all pleasure or to quit all work, think again. He wants us to experience pleasure. He wants us to experience good, hard work, but in the right way to see them as gifts from the Lord and to receive them as such. Now, in the context of so much talk about death, it might sound like Solomon is promoting the nihilistic idea that we should just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Like, you could easily get that here, right? It's, he says, death's coming for everyone. We can't take anything with us, so eat it up. Drink it down. Enjoy it all. Like, we're all going to die anyway. Is that really what he's saying? Is that a biblical way to think about life or to approach life? That idea shows up a few times in Scripture, and every other time it appears in a very negative context. In Isaiah 22.13, when Jerusalem should have been mourning over God's judgment, they were instead throwing a party saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Then in Luke 12, Jesus seemed to say that this belief is the epitome of foolishness. He told the parable of a rich, hugely successful farmer who ran out of room for his crops. So he tore down his barns, built bigger ones to store all of his stuff in. And once he had a nice nest egg, you could say, stored up, he retired saying to his soul, 
soul. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul exposes this belief as worldly, not Christian wisdom. He says, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor. In other words, if we think that enjoying life should be our goal and an end in itself, we need to wake up from that. It's, a, it's an immoral deception. Wake up. So then, how is what Solomon suggests in Ecclesiastes any different from these other passages? Well, we'll go through them. In Isaiah 22, God's people were willfully ignoring God. Solomon's not doing that here. In the parable of the rich fool, the, the guy told himself to relax permanently. While Solomon actually commends finding joy in our toil, too. Also, Jesus says the rich fool was living for himself, not rich toward God. While Solomon is clearly acknowledging God's role in all of life here in Ecclesiastes now. And then in 1 Corinthians 15... Paul is saying that if the resurrection isn't true, okay, in other words, if this physical life, fallen world, this life is all there is, then by all means, live it up. But, he also said right before that, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So there is more to life. Thus, we have to be careful how we use the life we're given. Now, Solomon couldn't have known how Jesus was going to transform even death one day. However, even the perspective that everything came from God changed everything. Like, we don't enjoy life for enjoyment's sake. We enjoy life for God's sake. As David Gibson explains, some say eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is. Ecclesiastes says eat, drink, and be merry because that's what there is. Get the difference there? Here's how I'd put it. I'd boil it down this way. Like, this isn't just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's eat, drink, and be merry for today we live. For today we live, and God has given us this gift. Yes, some tomorrow we're going to die. And we need to think on that way more than we do. But in light of our deaths, it makes today that much more special. And today, God has given us so much that he wants us to rightfully enjoy. And we need to think on that with thankfulness. 
way more than we do. Let me read how Gibson continues. He says, The whole point of this is to show that the world cannot be leveraged to suit me, and life is meant to be enjoyed, not mastered. When we accept in a deep way that we are going to die, that reality can stop us, that reality can stop us expecting too much from all the good things we pursue. We learn to pursue them for what they are in themselves rather than what we need them to be to make us happy. Death reorients us to our limitations as creatures and helps us to see God's good gifts right in front of us all the time, each and every day of our lives. Instead of using these gifts as means to a greater end of securing ultimate gain in the world, we take the time to live inside the gifts themselves and see the hand of God in them. So, take a minute and think through what you've been eating lately or what you'll eat today. Okay, your breakfasts, lunches, dinners, your desserts, snacks, your Thanksgiving feasts last week. Each bite you've taken and devoured is given to you from the hand of God. Do you realize that? Do you taste his goodness in cinnamon toast, shawarma, pancit, turkey and gravy, ice cream? We should. Like this, this world has fallen, and yet God gives us chips and salsa and bacon and eggs. Charles Spurgeon once said, There is hardship in everything except in eating pancakes. <laughs> First Timothy 4 tells us that God created foods to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Or, consider what you've had to drink, or will drink soon. Water, with all its refreshing and nourishing power. I think I'll have some now. Can't live without it. Milk, orange juice, coffee, tea, Coca-Cola, wine, Mountain Dew, pumpkin spice latte. Do you ever savor the flavor of those liquids on your tongue? We should. What a blessing God has given to us in them. Or, think for a minute what, about what you do in life. Your toil under the sun, which includes your jobs, your studies, your chores, your hobbies, all of your activities. Okay, We have dwelt a long time on just how fleeting and frustrating our toil can be. But, as Tim Keller has explained, work will be both frustrating and fulfilling. And sometimes, just often enough, human work gives us a glimpse of the beauty and genius that might have been the routine characteristic of all our work and what, by the grace of God, it will be again in the new heavens and new earth. 
Thus, even in the midst of the vanity, there are still so many things we can enjoy in our toil. God gives us talents and giftings and passions that we get to use in the world. We get joy from serving others. It's more blessed to give than to receive. We get joy from from being gainfully employed. Think about it. Unemployment just depresses us. We get joy from completing projects, satisfaction from jobs well done. We get joy from the good burn of our muscles after working them out. We get joy from getting paid, promoted, raises, or getting recognized for excelling in our work or our studies. We get joy from the fruits of our labors, no matter how fleeting they may be. And if we don't enjoy our hobbies, then why even have them? List some for you. Kayaking, fishing, sewing, dancing, gaming, disc golfing, woodworking, gardening, hiking, reading, whatever floats your boat. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. So are you grateful? Have you expressed your gratefulness to the Lord yet? All these enjoyments, or even the ability to enjoy them, didn't come from you. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Did you catch that? Apart from God, says no one can eat or have enjoyment at all. But people eat and enjoy life every day without ever acknowledging God's part in it. Yes, and that's, that's Solomon's point exactly. That kind of enjoyment is from God, but that will expire on its own. Inasmuch as we recognize God as the giver of all true joy, it can endure. True enjoyment, lasting joy, comes only from him. As Gibson concludes, endless, and enjo- endless enjoyment does not come in the box with your iPhone. If it did, why have you been considering that upgrade? Enjoyment is not automatically part of sex. It is not on the key ring to your dream house. It doesn't ride with you on the passenger seat in your new car. We all know what it's like to have tasted the best life has to offer and still to be left wondering what comes next. God has to give us enjoyment or the thing itself will leave us unsatisfied. And this all adds to our big idea of the day. So I said, yet God gives to us as we live under him. Yet God gives to us as we live under him. Yes, we live under the sun. But more importantly, If we follow the Lord, we live under God and his rule. Apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Or as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, As for the rich in this present age, 
Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So God richly provides us with everything, and in order to what? To to hoard them? Or to use them? To, To forbid them or shun them? No, to enjoy them. So enjoy. (laughs) And if you hesitate to enjoy God's gifts to the fullest, because maybe Jesus wouldn't like that, just remember, Jesus himself came to earth eating and drinking. The Bible says that. Gluttony or, or drunkenness, we believe that takes it too far. But enjoyment is actually godly. It's Christ-like. Since we still live under the sun, our pleasures will be tainted in many ways, but that doesn't mean we need to just cut ourselves off from the world or ban ourselves from joy. Some Christians have sadly attempted to do that at times. You know, these things gives us, give us little glimpses into how God originally designed the world to be and how he will remake the world to be one day when we feast with him in glory. So when you sit down for a meal, and maybe you need to actually sit down to do this well, don't just wolf everything down like you're filling up your gas tank. Like... Our foodie culture slash fast food age, ironically, both idolizes and degrades our eating at the same time. So at times, we're worshiping food as if it has ultimate value, and at other times, we're ignoring it like it has no meaning. No, stop and slow down and savor And think about what you're consuming. But don't let the enjoyment terminate on the gift. Let it draw you to the giver. At the end of Solomon's quest, he finally realized where happiness came from. Not in all his striving, but from God's giving. Not from his earning, but from grace. Truly, apart from the Lord, what do we have? Absolutely nothing. Like, not only do we not deserve anything good from Him, we actually deserve His judgment. And yet, God gives. He gives to us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, Jesus Christ. And Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us. Taking what we deserved through his death on the cross and giving us what he earned through his perfectly righteous life. Acceptance, approval, favor, grace, welcome, holiness, and righteousness. Along with forgiveness and mercy and cleansing and and salvation. New life in him. Through his resurrection, we're also promised eternal life with him forever. Brother or sister, 
Are you anxious today? Fretting over some circumstance in your life? Are you worried that God might not provide what you need? Look to Jesus and see the generosity and love and grace of God. This also I saw is from the hand of God. And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Can you trust him today? Or maybe you don't have a relationship with God yet through Jesus, so you could say that you are apart from him. And if that's you, I hope today that you would feel the hollowness and elusiveness of all that you pursue in life, that it slips through your fingers. I hope you see the brokenness and emptiness in your own heart too. And I hope that these things drive you to your knees at the foot of the cross where God can pour out all his blessings upon you. Commit your life to Jesus today. He's the only thing worth it. Get yourself living under God's rule and reign. Recognize that all you have comes from the hand of God and receive it with thankfulness. God loves blessing those who come to him. Like verse 26 goes on to say, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner... He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. But we think if, if we are all such fallen sinners, how can any of us actually please God? Great question. We're given an answer later in the Bible in, a Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter 11 where it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we need to have faith in the grace of God for sinners like us. And only then, once he saves us, can we truly please him with our lives. And in action, the Bible does treat that this is possible now for us. We can please the Lord. But did you notice there in Ecclesiastes a second blessing that God gives those who please him? It says, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. He gives wisdom to us. So after Solomon applied himself to wisdom and became wiser than anyone else in history and determined to live more wisely than anyone else, what did he find? He found that true wisdom itself is a gift from God. It comes from him. He bestows it as he wills. I subtitled this sermon series, Finding Wisdom and Joy in Our Frustrating and Fleeting Lives. And here we see exactly, really exclusively, where we can find true wisdom and joy. It's in God. So do you want godly wisdom in your life? You'll need to go to God and depend on him for it. The good news 
is that he loves to give it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Like the theme in all, I've given you lots of verses from all over the Bible today, and the theme in all of them, and, and, and really the point of this passage in Ecclesiastes is clearly God gives, God gives, God gives. And don't miss the implication of this. As Solomon has been asking all along, what gain do we gain from all our toil under the sun? Well, we gain. We actually gain everything that we are given by God. All of our strivings in life for wisdom, pleasure, work, they're fleeting, they're frustrating, they're vanity, if they are detached from pleasing the giver of life. I have a, a gas barbecue in my backyard. And once in a while, I've, I've tried to get the burners to ignite without realizing that the gas line was off. All I get is clicks and no flame. Click, 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 click. Apart from the source of power, we have nothing. And apart from the source of life, all our enjoyment of life might as well be clicks and vapor. But with God and under him, he gives and he gives, and he gives some more. And notice, God's generosity isn't just a future thing. It's a past and present thing. He said, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. That's past tense. So this happens in life, now, before death. Like our impending deaths can really make the lives we're given more significant and more special now. For example, when people hear of a tragedy, why do they sometimes say, go home and, and hug those you love tightly tonight? Because life is precious in the face of death. We can see here that, that God gives to us this precious life as we live under him. He gives us in life right now. But we also see something else here in verse 26 that he gives to his people even through death. But he uses death to give to us. Look at it. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. Now, as we've seen, Solomon knew this business of gathering, collecting, by experience. So he knows well that if anyone gathers and collects, apart from God, even if they prosper now, they're going to lose it all eventually when they die. And who will they leave it to? Well, in the short term, who knows? Right? Sometimes it, it goes to someone great, other times not so much. Sometimes it even goes the other way around. A good person get, stuff gets left for the wicked. But in the eternal long term, the people of God will inherit it all. So, before death, all our pursuits are unfulfilling, yet God gives to us as we live under him 
in life and through death. Okay, that's the whole thing. Yet God gives to us as we live under him in life and through death. For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after win. Wait, even God's gifts are vanity? No, 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 no. This is saying the sinner's gathering and then losing everything is vanity. It's smoke in the wind. This verse promises us that God actually gives one other thing to his people. He gives justice. He gives justice. Like Anyone see any injustice in our world this week? Solomon has lamented, and he's going to more in Ecclesiastes, he's lamented the seeming unfairness of death, of leaving everything behind. But now he confesses that he believes God will eventually make it all right. And the Bible frequently tells us that the righteous will be rewarded, the wicked will be judged, God's justice will be done, sometimes even with what we would call poetic justice. Like we see, for example, in the story of Esther, with the evil Haman. Haman ended up having to honor Mordecai and then gets hung on his own gallows. But even if God's justice doesn't come now in this life, it most certainly will in the next. Unrepentant sinners will have no lasting gain, only loss. Well, all they would have had is handed over to those who please God. And if you're not absolutely certain that you're in that camp of those who please God, come to Jesus. Because he is in the business of saving sinners all the time. And he'll welcome you today. But to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. And don't trust Solomon on these things. Don't believe me. Maybe you take it from David. It says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Better yet, take it from Jesus. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Or, hear what's promised to those in Christ. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So can you trust him today? And can you enjoy him today? God will give us joy, wisdom, and justice as we live under him. It's good for us to, to long for these things, to seek after them, to ask God for them, and it's good for us to trust him even when we don't feel these things on the surface right now. 
when we can't seem to sense the joys of life because other things are so hard. Or when we feel like wisdom, living God's way, isn't getting us anywhere in life. Or when we really see the injustice of living in a broken world. As nations war and and people hurt each other and death seems to be running the show. Take heart. God is not sleeping. He's not missing in action. God is still king. And he will still have his way. He's still giving joy to his people in the midst of strife. Doubled joys, in fact. He's still giving wisdom generously to those who ask. And boy, do we need it now. And he still will give justice in life and through death. So may our struggles with the vanity of life under the sun drive us to him. And may our blessings do the same. Turning us to the God from whom all blessings flow. Would you pray with me? Father, would you turn our hearts to you even right now in these moments? Turn them away from the worthless, vain things of this life and turn them to you. And help us to see in the things of this life that you yet give us your beauty and your goodness and your wonderfulness. You're you're so amazing, God. You're so loving to us and so generous. So we thank you and we praise you. Would you keep stirring our hearts in these things and drawing them back to you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.